There is indeed a higher throne. I love the words of the song and the way they introduce um, us for the preaching and for the sermon, for the theme of the sermon. There's a higher throne than all this world has known, where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. Well, I encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We'll be reading from ver- chapter 17, uh, from verse 16 through 34. As uh, you turn there, I want to remind you that we are continuing this year uh, a sermon series that we began sometime early in 2014. Um, we began that ser- uh, the sermon through the book of Acts, a uh, sermon series through this book. This sermon is uh, the first one of this year uh, from the book of Acts. It is the 45th, 41 sermon, 41st sermon of this series. I pray that the Lord continues to bless the preaching of His Word from this book of Scripture. If you did not bring your Bible this morning, I encourage you to find a Bible provided in a chair in front of you. You may find this uh, passage on page number 926, and here is the word of the Lord as we read together. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they may feel their way toward him and find him. He, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. 
But now, He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed the day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word? Almighty Father, we confess that we do not have the power on our own fleshly nature to understand your word as you would have us understand it. We depend upon your spirit because of our sinfulness. We depend upon your spirit to hear your word in fresh ways. So we pray, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? Would you let us understand? Would you let us engage with you through the preaching of your word? We pray this for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, this is really the second time I'm preaching, I'm reading this passage. Uh, the last time I read it was the last Sunday of December of 2014. And I mentioned then this passage is so vast in what it's trying to say to us that trying to do it all in one sermon was just too much. So I divided it in two parts. The first was on, Janu- on December 28th uh, when we talked about uh, what Paul preached prior to the, his speech in the Areopagus. We must remember that Paul preached other things in Athens besides this sermon. We saw that last time uh, I was with you. Today, we are going to talk about the famous speech, uh, the famous speech on Mars Hills. If you have a hard time using or saying, if you feel like your tongue is breaking as you would say the word areopagus, just say Mars Hills. Mars Hills is a translation of the two Greek words areopagus. Um, so um, this is the, the famous speech, the famous sermon that Paul gave. Uh, this sermon has often been examined and uh, looked at closely for the purpose of seeing how Paul changed his preaching in different contexts. People make the observation how different Paul's sermon is in this particular case as opposed to in other places where he preached to the Jews. And uh, in some way this observation is correct. In other ways, it is very not true. It's correct that in the synagogue, Paul was able to assume a common foundation with his audience. Uh, They would already believed in the true God. The Jews already knew who he was, what his promises were. They already knew his promise to send a a rescuer, the Messiah, who would come and, and rescue his people from their sins. So all this was already common. The Jews already knew about the coming day of judgment when God will will bring all things to judgment. All this was commonly assumed. So when Paul has to preach to the Jews in the synagogue context, the primary emphasis that he will bring is that the one promised in the Old Testament is Jesus of Nazareth, that he has already come, and that through him now people are, are given the promise of forgiveness of sins, that God is now extending forgiveness of sins no longer through animal sacrifices, 
birthed through preaching Jesus, through the name of Jesus. This was Paul's emphasis so that all those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ, in Jesus, to be the Christ, they are granted forgiveness of sins. But when preaching to people who did not have the foundation and the knowledge of God and His plans, Paul has to start with the very beginning. He has to start with telling them about who this God is. What does He require of mankind? You see, this is not a different message. It's the same message, but a different starting point. So that Paul starts this sermon with a truth about God. Let me ask you a question. Can you preach the gospel from the doctrine of God? Can you preach the gospel if you had to focus predominantly on who God is and what He has done and what He commands people to do? This is what we see here with Paul. He is preaching the gospel by actually focusing from the beginning to the end on who God is. Now, take a moment and think about this question. What would you say about God to an unbeliever? Think about it. What would you say to an unbeliever about God? What would you include? How would you describe Him? What would be the first things you would start saying about God to someone who doesn't have a concept of God? To someone who you don't know if they have a a good concept of God or a faulty concept of God? Where would you start? What would you include as you would seek to describe who God is to that person? Think about it. And, and as you think about the things you would start using, describing who God is, as you think about the, the things you would include to describe God to this person, would some of the things you come up with, would they be the things that Paul said in this sermon? I want you to think about this entire passage that, that Paul gives to the Athenians and see if the things he mentions would make it on your list of describing who God is to people who might have a wrong picture of God. With people who have a faulty concept of God, our safest place to start the gospel message is with the truth about God. Without that foundation message, the truth about Jesus and His salvation may not make much sense. It may be a very trivial message of what John Stott said, People don't refuse the gospel because it's false, but because it's trivial. And we must start with a focus on who God is so that people might understand why is it important for us to, to know later about what Jesus has done. Now, this sermon that Paul gives to the Athenians can be of great benefit for all of us, regardless of our background. If we have a concept of God that's according to Scripture, this sermon is still helpful for us because it reminds us of the foundation of our faith. It's helpful for us because it's a model of where to start when we talk to people who have a different foundation than us. And it's a model of what we would say to people about God. What is important for us to say about God to people? Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. First of all, we're so glad that you're with us. We pray that you would join us every Sunday. This sermon, it would be very beneficial for you as well because it would provide you with a key starting point to understand the Christian truth. It is this, this 
the truth that Paul says here that would really lay the foundation of understanding the Christian truth. So let's listen carefully to how Paul begins talking about this God. For those of you who like taking notes, uh, here's a warning. I have seven points. Seven points. And here's the first one. The true God, even if unknown, still matters. The true God, even if unknown, still matters. It's amazing to look at what exactly Paul finds as a hook in starting his speech about God in, in Athens. I think, remember, Athens is a place where they had many, many gods. Lots of them. A great variety of them. And still, with all the options of all the gods in Athens, yet Paul could use none of them as a launching pad to introduce his God. It's interesting that Paul begins his presentation of God by referring to the altar devoted to an unknown God. Don't you find that interesting? With so many gods in Athens, Paul instead begins by using the altar devoted to a God whom they have not known. In other words, Paul is saying to them, of all the gods whom you know and worship, none of them has any resemblance to the God I am about to proclaim to you. How sad. Think of it. How sad. None of them would have any resemblance. Actually, the only one, they, the only altar that, that Paul could sort of latch on to, to use as an introduction, as a launching pad to start talking about, about the God he's going to talk about is this altar to an unknown God. At least the Athenians acknowledge their ignorance that there might be a God out there whom they have not known. At least that part. Today, modern man could care less about a God whom he, whom, whom, whom he doesn't know. Uh, today, modern man thinks that if I don't know something, I cannot be held responsible for it. Right? I mean, think how often you use this plea of ignorance as an excuse to get out of being responsible for something. Oh, I didn't know. I mean, had I known, I would have done something about it, but I just didn't know. Right? The Athenians seem to be more advanced. They realized that to forget to worship a God who exists, even if, he, if, even if they didn't know him, they would still be responsible. So they come up with this altar, and they write the big inscription on it to the unknown God. Even he deserves to be worshipped. They knew that ignorance does not absolve them of responsibility. So Paul starts at this very point with their acknowledgement of their ignorance, for their ignorance still led them to act in a certain way. And yet, the first truth that Paul will say to them is this, it is not enough to worship an unknown God. It's not enough to worship an unknown God. Such worship is meaningless. I mean, think about it. It doesn't have any value. How can we respond to, to a God whom we don't know appropriately if we don't know who he is, what he is like, what he demands, 
what he requires, what he commands. That's why in verse 23, look at how Paul, what, what Paul says. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is why knowledge of God, dear friends, is so important in worshiping him. We can't truly worship God unless we know him. So that we, so that we don't worship him on our terms, but on his terms. But how can we worship him on his terms if we don't know what he's like? No wonder that Paul in his prayers uh, throughout the New Testament letters, he would often have this prayer reason for them. He would say that they would, he prays that they would grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Because knowledge of the Lord, knowing God, is so foundational for worshiping him appropriately. Jeremiah 9 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. How amazing. John 17, 3, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God, do we know what we worship? Do we know Him whom we worship? You can't worship appropriately what you are ignorant of. Such worship turns out to be idolatry, because such worship is based not on what God requires and wants, but on what we come up with. And worship according to human ideals always leads to idolatry. Worship that is based on or according to human ideals always leads to idolatry. I love what John Calvin says, God cannot be worshipped rightly unless he first be made known. God cannot be worshipped rightly unless he first be made known. So it doesn't matter if you worship an unknown God. It doesn't. It, he must be proclaimed so that we might worship him appropriately and correctly. And with this, as we look at Paul's speech, let's look at the truths Paul says about God. But also let's look at how Paul demolishes their idolatrous thinking about God. Notice in Paul's speech, as we look at everything that he will say, notice how he will often say what God is unlike. Because in the process of saying what God is like, who he is, Paul also, also has to deconstruct, to demolish false understandings of God. So listen together with, with not only what Paul says what God is like, but listen for what Paul says he's unlike. Friends, sometimes the first thing we must realize about God is how unknown he might be to us. We may need to strip off our own conceptions about what we want God to be like. And we need to listen to how He reveals Himself to us in the Scriptures through the prophets and the apostles. So starting with verse 24, Paul will describe the truth about God. And so here's point number two. And we will say six things about this God. Six things about this God. Here's point number two. The true God is creator of everything. So we're going to see some basic truths here, friends, but they're so foundational 
that sometimes we take it for granted and we need to be reminded of their foundational nature. Look at what Paul says in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Yes, Paul begins with this very basic foundation, God as creator. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Because if we don't have foundation, this foundation as God as creator, everything else we will say about God will have no authority or meaning. If he is not the creator, then what gives him the right to make claims on us? What gives him the right to define reality for us? The very truth that we would say to people when we say, God says this, why should I listen to that God? Why should I care about what God says? Because he's a creator. Because he made all things. If he's not the creator, there's no authority, there's no weightiness in the truth of what he reveals. Paul says that God is a creator of everything, and he does not live in temples made by human hands. This is the first corrective sentence. This is the first thing Paul says, God is unlike. He does not live in temples made by human hands. By the way, a similar point was made by Stephen. Remember when Stephen preached and he was executed, he was stoned in Acts chapter 7? Um, that one of the things Stephen says, this time to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, he says, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, and what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Friends, if God is a creator of everything, that means that we cannot limit him to our human constructs. We can't limit God in, in, certain, in a building. We can't limit God in, in the construct of our minds, of what we want him to be like, if God is a creator of everything. Did you know that, as we read earlier, the 24 elders who stand around the throne and heaven sing the following song of worship to God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why ascribe all this to God? For the basic truth, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. And as they sing this basic truth, they cast down their crowns before the throne. Friends, it's such a basic truth that sometimes we take it for granted. And, and we no longer fall in adoration and worship before God for this basic truth that He is the creator of all things. Is your heart warmed up when you remember the truth that God is a creator of all things and by his will all things were created? Does your heart warm up in worship? Because the 24 elders, this is what they sing to the Lord around his throne. It, it doesn't, doesn't get any better than that. It really starts with the doctrine of creation. Now, why does the truth about God as creator matter to Paul, and why should this matter to us? Because this fact alone demolishes the logic of idolatry. If God is a creator of everything, it means that we should not define him according to what we like. 
If God is a creator of everything, we don't create God. God creates us. He alone can reveal his existence to us, what he is like. And he defines our existence. By the fact that he is a creator of everything, he has an absolute claim on us. And he has an absolute claim on defining reality. That's why it matters. Love uh, J.I. Packer in his book, a wonderful little book. If you have not read it, I'd encourage you to read it, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. J.I. Packer says, we must know what it means to call God creator before we can grasp what it means to speak of him as redeemer. Nothing can be achieved by talking about sin and salvation where this prime preliminary lesson has not in some measure been learned. This is why Paul spends quite a few verses unpacking the doctrine of God as creator. But notice what else God, Paul says about God. Not only is the true God is a creator of everything, the true God is a sustainer of life. This would be point three. The true God is a sustainer of life. Look at verse 25. Nor is he served, Paul says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. In other words, we should not have a view of God that he needs anything from us for his existence. Nothing. He, he doesn't even need our tithes. He doesn't need our offerings. He doesn't need our acts of service as if that would make him better or would improve his existence or would help him out. When God calls us to do things like that for him, it's for our benefit, not for his. It's for our benefit that he engages us in his work. So even the things we would bring to him, it is, it is really for our sake to remind us we, we all depend on him. It all belongs to him. And then he says quite the opposite. Instead of him needing things from us, we need everything from him from our for our existence. He says, Paul says, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, the doctrine of creation by God is important because it establishes our dependence on him. It establishes our need of him. This means that we are not the starting point of our spirituality. This means that we are not the starting point of our spirituality. True spirituality, friends, starts with acknowledgement that man is dependent upon his creator for everything. The very breath we breathe, the very breath we're going to have in the next second is from God. We are dependent on him. The true God is a sustainer of life. Point number four. The true, life, the true God is the ruler of nations. The true God is a ruler of nations. Why does God have a claim on the nations of the earth? Because God made them. Look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. That God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Yes, from one man, from Adam. God made Eve. And then from Adam and Eve, God made the rest of the nations of the earth. But God did not just create the nations and pulled away and simply let the, the world go on its own. That kind of a view of God is called the deism or a deistic view of God. It gives this impression that, okay, God is a creator. He created all things. 
But then he, he just let it go on its own. He put it in place and said, all right, you guys are on your own. I'm minding other business. That is not the God of the Bible. That is a false God. The God of the Bible is not only the creator of all things, he's also the sustainer of all things and the ruler of the nations. And he's actually personally involved in the affairs of the nations. Look at verse 26. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of, dwelling, of their dwelling places. God is personally involved in the affairs of all the nations to determine the times when they exist and the places where they dwell. Wow. The true God rules over the destinies of the entire nations. Some of us sometimes have a hard time believing that God rules over the destiny of one life alone, ours. Sometimes we struggle with that thought. And here we're reminded God rules over the destiny of not just of one nation, but of all the nations, not just at this time, but at all times, past, present, and future. God rules over them. Friend, if he's able to make all the nations from one man, he's able to rule all their destinies. Read the book of Daniel. If you, if you struggle with this picture, read the book of Daniel, and you will find it over and over again, this refrain which King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. Remember what King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way? That the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Wow! That's for a theology in the Old Testament of God's sovereignty over all the nations, not just over Israel. God is sovereign over all the nations, and he gives them to whoever he wills. That's why the true God has a claim on all people. He is a creator. He is a sustainer. He is a ruler of the nations of the earth. But there's a problem that Paul tells us about. And point number five that Paul says in this sermon, is that the true God must be sought. The true God must be sought. Look at verse 27. Why is God engaged? Why is God involved personally with, with the world? That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Here's the interesting thing. Here's, a, here's how, how big of a surprise this comes in this, in this passage. Even though God created us and everything else, even though God sustains all things, even though God is ruler over the destiny of the nations, mankind has lost touch with the true God. And that's why we must seek Him. God's ongoing involvement with the world is so that mankind would, would seek Him and perhaps find Him. Now, this is what it means for us as we think about how to speak to people about God. Friends, it's not enough to tell people that God is our Creator that he's a sustainer, that he's a ruler over, over the world, that he's involved in our world, we must tell them that the true God must be sought. He desires to be sought. We have fallen out of touch with him. We have been ignorant of him so that now we, his creation, must find our creator. And even when mankind has sought after the divine, mankind often seeks wrongly after God. This, Paul will say in verse 29. Look at uh, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
Now put yourself in Paul's shoes for a second. When Paul says this verse, by this one line, by this one sentence, he's condemning the searching after God that has been happening in Athens all along. Because this is what the Athenians have done with all their gods. They have worshipped him by thinking of them through, this, through an image of gold, silver, stone, through an image made of man. This is how their worship has been all along. By this one sentence, Paul declares their entire religious system false. Wow. The logic is pretty simple. If we are God's offspring, if he created us, if we should, if we should realize that we are his offspring and, and he's not our creation, that means we should not create God in our image or likeness. It means we should not worship God according to our tastes. That's why when people say, I am spiritual in my own way, have you heard that phrase? Or you say it about others. You know, he's spiritual in, in his own ways. Have you, have you heard that? People would say that. I hear it occasionally. Uh, if that, that phrase is so foolish. That phrase is so foolish. If we are indeed God's offspring, we should not come up with a concept of how to worship God in our own ways. We, we should not try to worship God the way we would like him to be. This is a foolishness of making God in our image. Now, how do people today worship God, a God made in their own image? Let me give you some phrases, and, and probably you could contribute to these examples as well. People would say, I can't believe a God who would do that. I just can't. People would say, I can't believe in a God who would punish people for their rebellion. I just can't. People would say, I... The God I like to believe in is a God who is blank. That's the God I like to believe in. All these, friends, are ways of coming up with a picture of God in our own image and likeness. And Paul wipes it out. He says, we must see God, but not in, a, in the way we like to see God, but in the way he demands to be sought. Point number six, how or what is involved in seeking the true God? The true God commands us to repent. The true God commands us to repent. Look at verse 30. It is the only command recorded here of what God or what this God requires and commands. Paul says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere This is how God must be sought. And Paul doesn't just tell them to believe in this God, just believe that he exists. What good is it to believe in him if we don't turn to him? Even the demons believe that. People who are estranged from God can still believe in God. People who are estranged from God can still believe in him. What is required, what God commands, is that people would turn to him. This is what repentance is. A turn from worshiping a false religion or man-made idols or man-made religion and begin to worship the true God. Preaching God's command to repent was part of Paul's gospel. Just look forward to Acts 26 
when Paul will summarize his uh, ministry to, to King Agrippa, Paul describes his ministry in this way. Acts 26, 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Do you see how Paul's gospel included a command to repent? How Paul makes it very clear that the God he's preaching commands now all people everywhere to repent. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you have not yet turned to the true God, this command is for you today. Repent. Repent of your sins and turn to God. And if you'd like to know more what this means, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. For those of us who are Christians, who have repented, let me ask you a different question. When was the last time you told someone that they must repent? In your preaching or in your talking about God, when was the last time you told people of this command that God made? When you spoke the gospel the last time or in previous times in the past and you told them about God, about Jesus, about sin, did you also tell them that they must repent? Or have we, God's people, left this command out of what we tell people about God? I'm afraid that today we somewhat feel embarrassed to even bring up the word repentance into our conversation when we talk to people. I'm afraid that sometimes we we feel embarrassed about this God, and yet this is a God Paul preached. I pray that we would not shun away from letting people know about God's command given to all people all over the place to repent. Knowing the gospel, friends, is not the same as repenting. There are people who know the gospel. There are people who know many things about God who have not yet repented. There are many people in church who have not yet repented. Repentance involves a radical break with the past, a turning away from idols to the true God. This is why sometimes when we talk about the cost of following Christ, it often You've, you've heard this phrase of, of costly grace, cheap grace versus costly grace. It oftentimes, and it should feel costly, not because we have to pay for it, but because it calls us to have a radical turn with the past. And because we cherish the past, it feels like it's pricey. It's, value, it's valuable to us. There's a cost to following Jesus, not because we have to pay for God's grace. No, God's grace is free. But because that which we are called to leave behind is oftentimes precious to us. That's why the gospel cost oftentimes is is communicated as costly grace. Friends, calling people to repent 
is telling them that that which they have worshipped is the wrong way to worship God. We must tell them to, to turn from their own way, their own conceptions of God, and turn to the true God and worship Him. The God who created all things, in whom we have our being, who orchestrated all things, commands all people everywhere to repent. This is what it means to seek Him. But friends, there is something else, a final truth. Why? Why does God give this command? Why should we repent? Why should we, we tell people to repent? Because of the last point Paul brings, the true God has set a date for judgment. The true God has set a date for judgment. We must be clear why God gives this command. Verse 21, uh, 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Because God has fixed a day. This day, this verse tells us that the day of judgment has already been fixed in God's calendar. God already has it. No one else knows about it, but God knows. As a matter of fact, he doesn't tell us when that day will be, because that's not what is important. What is important is how that judgment will be carried out and who will carry out that judgment. Verse 31b, by the man, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who will judge on that day of judgment? The divine judge is a man. The divine judge is a man. The man Jesus. And God gave proof of that by the fact that God resurrected him from the dead. The death that he died for the sinner, for the sins of God's people. God raised him so that on that day, Jesus will have the right and authority. Oh, friends, the resurrection of Jesus is proof that God appointed him to be the judge of all the world. To continue to live life apart from this Jesus is a bad, bad, bad idea for that day of judgment. That's why our ignorance of God is no longer excusable. Our ignorance of God is no longer excusable. Worshiping gods in our own image, coming up with our own spirituality that fits what we like, will not do it on that day of judgment. Friends, this is what Paul says to the Athenians. Pause. Take a look back. And I ask, want to ask you again the question I asked you at the beginning of the sermon. Which of these elements would make it on your list of describing who God is? At least two, I think, are often escaped. The truth, the command about repentance is often left to the side. And the truth about God's coming judgment is often left to the side. We do not want to worship and believe a God who will judge the world. We do not want to talk about that. And therefore, I'm afraid that sometimes even Christians flirt with a picture of an untrue God. The true God commands all people to repent. And the true God has set a day of judgment. This is what Paul makes clear in the most plain terms to his speech, in his speech, in his sermon, in the Areopagus. 
I love what John Stott said. We cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God or the cross without the creation or salvation without judgment. I pray that as we consider how we speak about God, that we would let the language of Paul, the things that Paul said to the Athenians, make their way in our own language and vocabulary as we seek to speak about God. That this year, when, when we begin, as we begin this year, as we pray and think about opportunities, many opportunities that God will give to us to make and to speak about God, to make Him known, let us pray that these truths will be there, that we will not push them to the side, that we'll speak plainly, forthrightly, and tell people what God commands, what God will do, and what God calls all people to do, to repent. May that be true of all our conversations about God. Paul's sermon challenges us to go back to our knowledge of God. I pray that you would do so this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you indeed reveal to us who you are, what you're like, what you are unlike, what you command all people everywhere, even now, to do what you have set already in your calendar. Oh, Lord, with these truths, would you make these truths to sound in our hearts afresh? Father, pray that we may not flirt with our ideas of, of you that we like and we design you to be in our own image. May we not flirt with that. May we submit ourselves and Always go back to your own revelation of yourself and adjust our views of you according to your revelation of yourself to us. Oh, Lord, we pray that as you give us opportunities, and we pray that you give us opportunities this year to speak about you. Give us the boldness. Give us the courage to speak about you fully and truthfully. In the name of Christ, we pray.